0: Hello, my name's Michael Dunn and I'm a Senior Researcher in Health and Social Care Ethics at the Ethox Centre in the Department of Public Health the University of Oxford. And the topic I'll talk about today is research involving adults who lack the capacity to consent to take part in that research, and particularly the regulation of this research in England and Wales under the Mental Capacity Act 2005. I'll talk a little bit about the requirements that this new law places upon researchers and hopefully this will be some help for researchers who are thinking about whether their research can go ahead with involving people who lack capacity to consent and how that process will work. This is a topic that's of interest to me both as an empirical researcher who does research involving adults lacking the capacity to consent, therefore have some experience of of these procedures, but also as a member of a national research ethics committee that uh, has a responsibility for assessing and approving this form of research onto the next slide. By way of introduction, I'll just cover the main points that I want to go through in the the presentation itself. First, I'll say something about the regulatory context of research involving adults that lack the capacity to consent in England, and particularly the Mental Capacity Act, as I said. Um, then I'll go and outline the main procedures that this piece of legislation and therefore research ethics committees will expect researchers to adhere to when they are thinking about undertaking research involving people who lack capacity to consent. And I'll give some guidance on the process of applying for ethical review when engaging with research with these adults, and outline some of the practical difficulties that researchers can face when going through this process. On to the next slide. So. To begin, as a way of framing the issue, um, it's worth pointing out that, that the process of undertaking research involving adults lacking capacity to consent is very carefully regulated now in England and Wales and has been for the last five years or so. A piece of legislation called the Mental Capacity Act 2005, which I'll refer to as the MCA, has been in place since October 2007, and sections 30 to 34 of this piece of legislation regulate and lay out the procedures that researchers who are looking to do research involving people who can't consent to take part in that research must follow. I should say that this, the MCA doesn't extend to clinical trials of investigative medical products, so-called CTIMPs. Clinical trials involving people lacking capacity to consent are governed by a separate piece of regulation, the Medicines for Human Use Clinical Trials Regulations 2004. And I won't say anything more about clinical trials in this presentation, but I have at the bottom of this slide given a link for people who are undertaking clinical trials and want some information about the procedures for those that form of research involving people who lack capacity to consent. It's important to say also that in Scotland and Northern Ireland different legal frameworks apply. So in Scotland the Adults with Incapacity Scotland Act 2000 and under Section 51 has a series of regulations that need to be followed. And in Northern Ireland Uh, research involving adults lacking capacity is currently governed by common law. In this presentation I'm simply going to cover the regulation of research involving people who lack the capacity to consent in England and Wales under the Mental Capacity Act. On to the next slide. So one of the questions to ask once we've determined the regulatory framework within which we're thinking about this problem is to try to define what kind of research comes under the scope of the Mental Capacity Act. And the MCA takes a very broad uh, definition of what research is when it involves people who lack capacity to consent. It describes its, its procedures applying in relation to all intrusive research, and this must be subject to ethical scrutiny. One way of understanding what intrusive research is is to say that it's any research that would otherwise require consent in order to be lawful. So it might therefore exclude, for example, anonymous uh, patient data. Empirical research that involves adults lacking capacity to consent will extend across all kinds of health and social care research contexts, and it will be both clinical and non-clinical in character. So social research Um, or health services research using interviews or observation methods still come under the criteria of intrusive research. This isn't simply about clinical research. However, if the purpose of the research is solely for the purposes of service development, rather than academic or uh, discovery purposes, if you like, it can be defined as audit under the National Research Ethics Service definition of research and that would mean that it falls outside the remit of ethical regulation. Audit rather than research, for example, might be studies that aren't (coughs) seeking to be published, but are simply internal studies to develop services and assess and evaluate particular services. However, in social care, the community accepts a much broader definition of research and service audits are classified as research, so that's something to be aware of. On to the next slide. The next point uh, to think about in framing the issue about involving adults lacking capacity to consent is to define those adults that fit within the, the requirements of the MCA. So the MCA applies generally to adults only, people aged 16 years and over. Research involving people under 16, minors, is governed by common law and there are certain established procedures to follow in, that, in undertaking research with children, which I won't go into today. What does it mean to lack the capacity to consent? Well. The Mental Capacity Act puts into statute uh, what they call a capacity test under section 2 and section 3. Broadly the capacity test means that an adult, because of an impairment of or disturbance in the functioning of their mind or brain, are unable to either understand information relevant to the decision, to give consent that is, or to retain that information, or to use or weigh that information up in the process of making a decision, or to communicate that decision. Generally, capacity under the Mental Capacity Act must be presumed. That's one of the core principles of the Act, unless it's established otherwise. But it's important to recognise that capacity is also decision-specific. So a person may have the capacity to consent to certain forms of research, but not other forms of research, if that research is more complex and the information to be understood is more difficult to understand. Uh, Alternatively, a person may have the capacity to consent to a medical treatment but lack the capacity to consent to research because the information required to understand in the research context is again a little bit more difficult than in terms of understanding a healthcare intervention. Sometimes of course a lack of capacity is likely to be able to be presumed. For example, research involving participants in persistent vegetative states or a coma, it's likely that you can presume that that person will lack capacity and therefore Will automatically fall within the scope of the MCA. However, in other cases, capacity will be more uncertain, for example, in a person who has a diagnosis with a mod- of a moderate learning disability. Also, capacity might sometimes fluctuate if you're seeking to do research over a period of time with a person with a drug dependency, or capacity might be a future concern. For example, the person may be able to give uh, consent at the moments in time in which a study starts, but in a longitudinal study, let's say involving people with dementia, it's likely that that person's ability to give consent over the course of the research will be in doubt, and that would also fall within the scope of the MCA. Of course nobody under the MCA can be permanently mentally incapacitated, and no diagnosis can itself be indicative of an incapacity. Um, Every single piece of research must be, every single participant in each piece of research must be assessed on the basis of the information and their particular requirements. On to the next slide. So what does the Mental Capacity Act actually require of researchers to gain approval to undertake their research involving people who lack capacity to consent? Well, to gain what is called Section 30 approval, the MCA and therefore a research ethics committee requires researchers to fulfil a number of requirements under three supplementary sections of the Mental Capacity Act. These are Section 31 General Requirements, Section 32 Consultation Requirements and Section 33 Supplementary Requirements. And the IRAS form, um, which is the form that is used by the National Research Ethics Service is structured in a way that enables researchers to demonstrate how they intend to meet these requirements in in their research. Next slide. Under Section 31 of the Mental Capacity Act, certain requirements are expected of researchers. Firstly, the research must be approved by an appropriate body. The government has interpreted this requirement as limiting the approval of research to the National Research Ethics Service, which is a national service governing research in the NHS and social care. At the moment, a limited number of NHS research ethics committees are flagged for MCA approval. This is currently 33 out of 180 of the total committees. Uh, Only these 33 committees can approve research involving adults lacking the capacity to consent in NHS research-based settings. There is also a national social care REC as well, the so-called SCREC, which was established in June 2009 and can approve social care research involving adults lacking capacity to consent. Another requirement under Section 31 is that the research must be connected to the impairing condition that renders the participants unable to give consent, or the care or treatment of that condition. For example, a person with dementia could not be recruited to a study that had nothing to do with their dementia, the treatment or care of their dementia, or perhaps the cure of that dementia. There must also be reasonable grounds for believing that the research cannot be carried out without including those unable to consent. So, in any research where you might be able to recruit people who have the capacity to consent, to do comparable effectiveness, that research should go ahead. The general principle is that research should not include people who lack capacity to consent, and that's absolutely necessary. And in terms of judging whether it's necessary, the research must have the potential to either benefit the participants without imposing a burden that's disproportionate to that potential benefit, or it must be able to benefit others who have the same or similar impairing condition if the risk to the participants is negligible and the research will not be unduly invasive or will not interfere significantly. With the participants' freedom of action or their privacy. It's important to recognise that university research ethics committees or other service provider or internal research and development RECs in the NHS or local authorities are not recognised as appropriate bodies under the Mental Capacity Act. All research has to be channeled through the NRES system. On to the next slide. Under Section 32 of the Mental Capacity Act, researchers need to demonstrate that they've met certain requirements in relation to consultation with people. As a starting point, researchers are expected to identify a personal consultee. This is a person who is not connected to the research project and who is engaged in caring for the participant or who has an interest in his or her welfare, but not in a professional capacity or for remuneration, and someone who is willing to be consulted. In most cases, this personal consultee will be a close family member of the adult who lacks capacity to consent, and it's the researcher's duty to identify and approach that personal consultee. The researcher has an obligation to provide the identified consultee with information about the project so that that person can advise on what they think the proposed participant's wishes, feelings and values would be. In relation to being involved in the project, if they had the capacity to consent. If the personal consultees' assessment of that person's wishes, feelings, and values are aligned with that person's participation in the research, the personal consultee should make a declaration that the research can proceed with the involvement of that person on the basis of these on these grounds, basically. It's important to recognize that this doesn't change the core legal point in in English law that nobody can give consent or assent on behalf of an adult lacking capacity to consent. This is simply a declaration of agreement that the research can go ahead. On to the next slide. Secondly, under Section 32, if no personal consultee can be identified, then a nominated consultee should be identified instead. Um, A nominated consultee must be a person who is involved in the care of the proposed participant, or again is interested in his or her welfare. But this person can be involved in the person's care in a professional or paid capacity. A, For example, a nominated consult team might include a key worker in a care home, or it might be the person's GP. Again, they should be wholly unconnected to the research. They should not be linked in any way to the research team involved. And the nominated consultee is expected to fulfill exactly the same role as the personal consultee. If the personal consultee refuses to make the declaration that the person can participate in research, then a nominated consultee cannot be approached. So the nominated consultee does not replace the personal consultee if the personal consultee refuses to give permission for the research to go ahead. But if the personal consultee refuses point blank to fulfill their role, then a nominated consultee can be approached onto the next slide. Under Section 33 of the Mental Capacity Act, the Supplementary Requirements, a certain set of broad principles are codified that researchers need to be aware of. Firstly, nothing can be done as part of the research to which the person lacking capacity appears to object or which is contrary to to any advance refusal that person has made and that is valid and applicable to their participation in research. Even if a person or nominated consultee has given permission for the research to go ahead, if the person appears distressed or appears to be objecting to whatever the researcher is doing, then the research must stop. And if the person indicates in, in any way at all that he or she wishes to be withdrawn from the study, then he or she must be withdrawn immediately. And this applies again if the personal consultee or the nominated consultee indicates at any point that the person should be withdrawn from the study, they should be withdrawn immediately. Broadly, the interests of the person must always be assumed to outweigh the, the interests of science and society. So the researcher must always pay the most attention to the interests of the person that they've recruited to the study. In general, a research ethics committee is looking for researchers to be able to demonstrate that they've got reasonable arrangements in place to meet these three sets of requirements under the law. They'll be asking questions, for example, Do the researchers have the relevant skills and experience in assessing capacity? If it's student research, does the student have help in making a capacity assessment from somebody who is used to judging a person's capacity? Have the research team demonstrated good reasons for including adults lacking capacity or not? Have they presented a clear outline of how they intend to approach personal consultees? Have they demonstrated how they'll provide information to them? And have they indicated how they will get their declaration to involve a particular participant lacking capacity to consent, for example? On to the next slide. Moving away slightly from the Mental Capacity Act now to think about some practical considerations that researchers might bear in mind when it comes to devising and developing research projects involving people lacking capacity to consent and going through the Research Ethics Committee procedures when undertaking this, when seeking to undertake this kind of research. Just to say something briefly about loss of capacity during the course of the research. Um, This might apply, for example, as I said before, if uh, researchers are proposing to do a longitudinal study involving adults with dementia, but it might broadly extend to any kind of research that happens normally involving people who don't have any impairing conditions, but then one or more of these people has some kind of accident or they have, they gain some kind of impairment that renders them unable to continue to consent to take part in research. In these circumstances, researchers can continue with their research if they comply with a separate set of regulations uh, known as the Mental Capacity Act's Loss of Capacity During Research Project Regulations 2007. Essentially, these regulations indicate that procedures must already be in place to involve people lacking capacity, and they must have been approved by the appropriate body, that is the REC. These procedures have to comply with sections 30 to 33 of the Mental Capacity Act. So in those circumstances where a person has suddenly lost capacity during the course of research, and the research team have not got prior approval to involve people lacking capacity to consent, they must return to the the Research Ethics Committee process and obtain permission to proceed. However, the re- in these circumstances, the research does not have to be linked to the person's impairing condition. It does not have to have the potential to benefit that person or aim to provide knowledge relevant to others with the same or similar condition because those will not have been the grounds upon which the research will ever have originally been approved. On to the next slide. One of the other major considerations to bear in mind is, that is simply the time and effort that it takes to go through these procedures to involve adults lacking capacity to consent. It is both time consuming and it requires a lot more bureaucratic work on the behalf of researchers. The capacity assessment and consultation process can take a long time to complete, months um, if not a series of months to complete, and it can be quite frustrating when it comes to contacting personal consultees and not getting responses. Also, extra information sheets and and declaration forms are going to be required, and researchers should bear that in mind when it comes to preparing their documentation for the REC process. Given the time and effort, the feasibility of undertaking research involving adults lacking capacity to consent for student projects, so for example, master's dissertations or PhD projects with a strict three-year deadline, need to be given some serious thought in my opinion. On to the next slide. Another practical consideration to bear in mind that there is a strong emphasis in the MCA and by research ethics committees on protecting people who lack capacity to consent. The MCA very much treats research involving these people as a special case. Unlike healthcare interventions, the best interest concept does not apply to research. And unlike the Mental Capacity Act generally, the general principle is that people who lack capacity should be excluded from research. They should not be encouraged to participate in research. And broadly this is a little bit inconsistent with the principles of the MCA as they apply to, to, to medical care and, and to social care more generally. And this means that researchers can sometimes be surprised that they need to, make, to be prepared to give much more careful thought to justifying the need for their research to go ahead. And they need to be able to provide a very considered and extensive defence of their study and the REC will be looking for that when they come to review these proposals. Broadly is justified on the basis that in research ethics there is a need for additional protection because the interests of others are always potentially at odds with the interests of the particular participants in the research because the research is broadly designed to improve future care, future treatment for other people who are not actually involved in the research itself. On to the next slide. One point to bear in mind for researchers is observed inconsistencies in the REC system itself in terms of the MCA's regulations. So Dixon, Woods and Angel in a 2009 paper in the Journal of Medical Ethics draw attention to legal inconsistencies in both the knowledge and interpretation of the MCA's requirements in their analysis of Research Ethics Committee decision letters. There seems to be some confusion by research ethics committees themselves about what the MCA requires and they've interpreted these requirements very differently. So researchers need to consider the appropriateness of whether they should appeal if they feel they've designed a protocol that is consistent with the MCA but has been judged to not be appropriate or, and has been denied approval by a research ethics committee. That's the end of what I want to say about the practical considerations. Just to finish now, I'll say something about some sources of further information for researchers. On to the final slide. There is other detailed guidance available about the involvement of adults lacking capacity to consent in research. For example, NRES have a series of procedural guidance about adults lacking capacity to consent. There are a series of documents available outlining the principles that underpin research involving adults lacking capacity a series of academic articles reviewing these principles. The Mental Capacity Act and the Code of Practice itself are good sources of information for guidance to researchers who, are, who want advice on what's expected of them under the law. And the Department of Health itself has published some guidance on the process for identifying and consulting with personal and nominated consultees, and I've given the links for those particular documents on this page. Thank you very much.